0: Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Pat Dorsey, and he'll be answering your questions on the go-to flies for Colorado. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Pat a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. While you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill out the form on the right side of our homepage and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now and help us tell other people about great shows we have here at Ask AskAboutFlyFishing. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted. It's the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc. Doing business Businesses, as Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Pat Dorsey about go-to flies for Colorado. Whether you want to catch your first permit in Belize, tame a giant tarpon in the Florida Keys, or wrestle a mint bright Atlantic salmon in Eastern Canada, Gill's Fly Fishing International's well-traveled booking team has the knowledge to make it happen. They consider trust to be the single most important aspect of their work. They only book locations that they know, meaning proven operations providing the right mix Of great fishing, comfortable accommodation, and high integrity. Get in touch today to start planning your next fly fishing adventure. Visit flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Again, that's flyfishinginternational.com or call them at 780-665-4943. Before we introduce Pat, we'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com, and look for the link under Pat's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Pat's latest book, Favorite Flies for Colorado, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Now, here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question or questions. Sometimes I make them two-part at the end of the show. The questions will be about something that Pat and I talk about during the show. So just submit your answer along with your name and location in the text box on our homepage. And you may win Pat's latest book, Favorite Flies for Colorado. So listen closely, take notes, type fast when the time comes, and hopefully you'll win Pat's book. Our guest tonight is Pat Dorsey. Pat is a native of Colorado and has been guiding for over 30 years. He spends approximately 200 days a year on the water enjoying unique quality of life, both personally and professionally. Pat is the guide director and partner in the Blue Quill Angler Fly Shop at Evergreen Colorado. He oversees and trades more than 20 guides and helps to set the standard for integrity, professionalism in the Blue Quill Angler Guide operation. He's also the Southwest field editor for Fly Fisher magazine. In 2005, Pat authored a book, Fly Fishing Guide to the South Platte River, a uh, complete how-to fishing manual for the entire South Platte River drainage, and he didn't stop there. In 2009, he authored Fly Fishing Tailwaters, and in 2010, a companion book, Tying and Fishing Tailwater Flies. He then published Colorado Guide Flies and recently published Favorite Flies for Colorado. Pat is an accomplished fly tire and has originated a number of very effective patterns, such as the Mercury Series, UV Scud, Limeade, Cherry Limeade, Paper Tiger, Top Secret Midge, Medallion Midge, and the famed Black Beauty. He is a fly designer for Umqua feather merchants, and Dorse, his signature flies are available at the Blue Quill Angler and other specialty fly shops throughout the United States. Pat is also a protein member for Whiting Farms, and many of his flies incorporate Whiting Farm products. Pat, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio.
1: Hey, thanks for having me again. Really appreciate the yeah. opportunity.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, it's always fun to have you on and I was just uh let me just look because um I'm trying to see how many shows we've done together. <laughs> Quite a few over the years and they go pretty far back. Yeah, uh South Platte River Ultimate Challenge, Colorado Guide Flies, Fly Fishing Tailwaters, Fly Fishing Colorado South Platte River. So four other shows. This should be your fifth, Pat. So wow. <laughs> welcome back, it's well deserved. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much so. for being able to share my passion with others.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. So you just got back from Argentina, right?
1: Yeah, it was a great trip. Getting settled back into the cold weather has not been easy. It was you know eighty five degrees a few days ago, and
0: <laughs> here we are. So Yeah. Well, how was the fishing? Great fishing.
1: And we were truly blessed too, to be down there, you know, when the world cup was being played. So.
0: Oh the
1: yeah. Football pretty seriously. So we were able to celebrate with them and just partake in all the festivities during the semifinal and then the final match.
0: Yeah. I bet you they were excited. i tell you, I was excited. I was working that day and Julie says, Hey, you know, the, the final's on and I, put it on and I start, she started to hear me screaming up because it was so darn exciting. It was like, I felt I was right there, you know, and I'm not even a big soccer fan, but that was like the best soccer match I've ever seen. So yeah, that was fighting time for Argentina. Yeah. 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 It was, crazy. Could... it was
1: great. A lot of friends and they're like family to me down there. So I was very, very happy for them.
0: What were you fishing for Browns or what were you fishing? Rainbows, for? Browns and Brooks. Yeah. Yeah. Get some nice fish.
1: We did. We got some big brown trout this year. It was fishing well and we're down there for, you know, we go down every year for the dragonfly hatch. So it's one of the most incredible things that you'll ever partake in fly fishing, catching big fish on big dry flies. It's
0: really a rewarding experience. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet. Yeah. A bit different than the South flat, right? <laughs> yeah. it's, <laughs> different. it's Yeah. It's, it's, you throw yeah. a dragonfly in the South Platte and you probably scare all the fish out to Nebraska somewhere, somewhere, huh? Yeah, you probably would. <laughs> well, we've got lots of questions. And of course, we do have a lot of Colorado listeners that listen to our show. And so I think they're all anxiously waiting to hear what kind of flies we're going to talk about tonight. But um, Bill Atkinson and Port Collins wrote in a kind of an interesting note here he said in my 70 plus years of fishing good for you Bill I have gone from using number six to tens to now 20 and 24s what are your predictions for the future of fly sizes and why do you make that prediction and you know what he says is true I haven't been fishing for 70 years but I don't remember really tiny flies when I first started so what's your take on that Pat
1: yeah, I mean, I agree with Bill, and I think most anglers would agree that we are definitely fishing smaller flies than ever now, and that's mainly because there's so much pressure on our waters, and these fish just aren't making silly mistakes anymore. You know, I can remember fishing a size 18 hares here on the South Platte down near Deckers in has Canyon and catching plenty of fish on that offering 30 years ago, but I found myself now fishing smaller and smaller and lighter tippets just because the fish are heavily pressured and i think that's what separates yourself now from other anglers is being able to fish smaller flies it just it makes a huge difference in the outcome of your day
0: we're gonna to have to start wearing magnifying glasses like my dentist has you know those, monoc- those binocular glasses <laughs> <laughs> to see these darn things yeah 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 well good good it's so uh and You know, that doesn't apply to all trout waters, of course, but your home waters are super heavily fished, so yeah, it all makes sense. Randy Ford in Casper, Wyoming, asks, he says, how do you set up your fly boxes by seasons or other method? Plus, what are your go-to flies no matter what the season is?
1: You know, it's hard to go wrong with midges. Midges are going to be a year-round food source, and a couple of my favorite midge patterns would be the top-secret midge. and and a black beauty. I think day in and day out, midges are going to be probably the most effective pattern. They're going to be the first hatch in the morning, last hatch in the evening. So women doubt, particularly in tailwaters, typically fish with midges. With regard to fly boxes and setting them up, I typically have all my dry fly sorted out by a specific category of aquatic insect. For instance, I've got all my midges in one small, plastic compartmental box i've got all my blueing olives in one small box caddis trichos and so on and so forth and that works well for me for my drives because i only carry what i need i have a couple big boat bags here at the house and then you know there's no sense of carrying green drakes, you know the middle of january so i try to be efficient with my fly selection and take only what i need and then i also have a tailwater box I have a bead head box, and I organize those by patterns as well. So I do have a method to my madness, but I try to, like I say, carry only what I need. Big fan of the Richard Wheatley leaf boxes because you can put so many small flies in it, and uh, you just you're pretty much covered for any type of scenario. Also have, you know, streamer boxes and some bigger offerings. So I separate them out that way, and it's worked well for me over the years.
0: Well, especially for, I would think, for the waters that you guide on on a regular basis, you pretty much know week by week what's going to be hatching on those waters, right? So that makes it a bit easier than than going to new waters and trying to sort things out, I suppose.
1: Absolutely. You kind of know that you're going to be fishing midges in November through March, and then sometime late March into first of April, then, you know, you got to start carrying more beta snams, get your blue wing olive dry flies into your arsenal of flies. And, and, you know, after you do it for a long time, you just kind of know what to expect and what's coming up and you start having a little bit more depth to your fly selection. But I think it's really important to be organized so that you're not fumbling through your fly boxes, trying to find a particular pattern during the height of a hatch. So that's kind of how I do it. And then, okay. and then my time in fishing Tellwater flies, I actually have a bunch of pictures of my fly boxes and kind of talk about fly organization. So, if you have that book, you might reference that.
0: Yeah, showing off your fly boxes, Pat. <laughs> we're, we're all jealous of your fly. I mean, your midge box is like what four thousand midges in that box. I may be exaggerating by a thousand, but pretty close. <laughs>
1: yeah there's a lot in there and you know it, <laughs> it just i don't think you know like i've said many times before i've never met an auto mechanic with too many tools but i've never met a fly fisherman with too many <laughs> fly. So i think you too just many
0: flies.
1: have high uh, yeah. tie, tie, tie.
0: well you at least you're um limited in that you don't have a boat on most of the waters that you're guiding on right so that's right <laughs> yeah i can't remember who i had on my show recently when they said yeah well i put everything in the boat because I do not want to have a green Drake hatch happen and I'm not, don't have my green Drakes with me just right. to be caught off guard or something, you know? So, uh, but he was talking about boat bag, like you were saying too. Yeah. 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 So, well, good. Yeah. It's important to know the waters you're fishing, right. And the time of year, and then you can limit what you're carrying and be more specific about your selections there. So that, that makes good sense. Now, you you mentioned there two flies that, no matter what the season, that you always will go to. And one of them was a top-secret midge, which is in your book, a recent book. Right. And tell us a bit more about that fly and how you fish it.
1: The top-secret midge is a midge keeper or midge emerger. So it's, it's typically my go-to fly when I determine that a midge hatch is in progress. So in other words, I'm starting to see... You know a few adults buzzing around the stream i'm starting to see the fish change location in the water column they're going to be fishing you know they're going to be feeding mid columns that's where it's a little bit more finesse a little bit more skill when you're fishing pupa versus dredging larvae down near the substrate because you got to keep your flies in the correct part of the zone but the fish pretty much will tell you when that occurs as well as just observation as far as the bugs are concerned but top secret midge is really one of my go-to patterns and it's just, uh, like many of my flies, very, very simple, easy to tie, quick off the vice, but no less effective and has a dash of flash. And I think it fools the, some of the more selective trout that I encounter.
0: Yeah, you use that for the wing, the uh, Prism White Glamour Medaria, I guess.
1: Yes, yep. yeah. that's oh. a
0: slick little uh,
1: material that we actually, you can get it at a sewing shop, but it's great for little emergers.
0: Yeah, I had to, when I first saw that in one of your other books. So I had, it took me a while to find that online, <laughs> but eventually I found it. <laughs> so yeah, not right. something that's kept in most fly shops, right? So right. Now, do you fish that when you know that the mergers are coming off? That are you fishing a a tandem rig or a three fly rig, or how you how do you rig up for that?
1: I typically, you know, when I'm fishing midges, I typically will run a larva and then a pupa. I oftentimes run three fly rigs and, you know, use some sort of an attractor for attracting nearby fish. But I fish my larvas closer to the weight, my pupa as the trailing fly, cause they should drift naturally in the water column. But it depends on the time of year. It depends upon river levels. If the flow is really, really low, then it's important to fish with small flies. I think large, gaudy attractors, you know, can be a red flag in some instances and spook more fish than actually attracting. So every scenario varies a little bit, and it's really based on the water type, water flows, time of year, what's hatching, and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah, yeah. When in the, you know, for the South Platte and some of the other fisheries, the blue and you do Williams Fork as well. What kind of leader are you going down to 6X, 7X? What do you need to do?
1: I fish 7X for my dry flies, typically, particularly in the winter, even in a trico hatch or something like that. So, real small dries, I'm fishing with 7X, size 20. I use 6X. Obviously, I'm using uh, nylon and I use fluorocarbon for nymphing, but for dries. And then, you know, it just everything really revolves around the hatch and i just i typically like to fish small bugs and there's a olive that's coming off and it's a 22 definitely fish at size 20 or 22 sometimes even one size smaller is never a bad idea
0: okay okay dave hudak in ohio wrote, and he, says he wanted to know what your go-to rods lengths weights and even lines for the different types of colorado waters
1: i'm a big fan i like nine foot rods and that works well for western trout fishing. Typically, I like a nine foot four weight for my dry fly fishing. and It just delivers the fly a little softer, you know, delicate deliveries. But for nymphing, you know, I mean, we all know that the majority of the time we're going to be nymph fishing in Colorado and western states. So, I like a nine foot five weight for that. And then for streamers, I use a six weight. I like a six weight particularly if you are throwing some bigger offerings and even it's a great rod to have along, you know, in case the wind picks up.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, okay, good, good. Let me, uh, time to take a quick break here. But when we come back, we'll dive back into go-to flies for Colorado with Pat Dorsey. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Musky town is much more than a musky fly shop. Whether you're a musky fly fishing guide and experienced musky hunter, or just getting into predators on the fly, Wherever life's adventures take you, Musky Town's proven lineup helps you be more successful on the water. They have rods, reels, lines, and flies for musky, pike, and bass. Most of their flies are tied in-house, and they fish them at every possible opportunity, so they know what works, why it works, and exactly what you need to put big fish in the net. Sit back, relax, and enjoy legendary fly shop service, and please let them know if there's ever anything they can help you with. Next time you think of musky, go to muskytown. That's muskytown.com. Call them at 763-312-6012. Again, muskytown.com, or call them at 763-312-6012. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Pat Dorsey about go-to flies for Colorado. If you'd like to ask Pat a question, go to our homepage, fill out that box, and uh, we'll take a look and see if we can't get them answered on the show tonight. Okay, Pat, so you just got back from Argentina. What else is happening in your fly fishing world? Getting ready for the shows? Yeah, we are. We're
1: getting ready. We're going to, you know, we do a lot of traveling. We're going to be heading to New Jersey and Atlanta and Texas and Iowa. And uh, yeah, we've got a lot, two big shows here in Denver. So we typically do seven or eight trade shows every winter season, and then I do a lot of uh, club speaking engagements as well, so I feel very blessed that uh, I've been able to make a living doing what I love to do.
0: Yeah, now you'll be speaking at a lot of the fly fishing shows, doing uh, workshops or seminars?
1: Yep, be teaching some classes, be tying some flies, and get, yeah, just giving some talks on South Platte and tailwaters and just different strategies to try to help folks elevate their game to the next level with small flies.
0: Right, right. Well, you folks, you'll have to try to look Pat up if you're near one of the fly fishing shows and goes, uh, check them out, look at their agenda, and see if you can't catch one of Pat's shows there. So, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, let's see here. Mike Bank in Colorado. He says, assuming you have the right size tippet, place the fly in the correct place in the water column. When fishing for picky trout, please rank in importance, size, silhouette, color, other things.
1: You know, the, the old size, shape, and color formula has been kind of a foolproof method of catching trout since I started fly fishing back when I was 10 years old, I can remember my father ingraining that to me and we teach that at the to schools. And so yeah, that's really important. And I think in the actual order that the formula discusses, the size is probably the most important. If you're going to air one size or the other, always air on the small size. I think shape's important too, with regard to, are you trying to imitate a midge larva, which is thin and uniform, more of a worm-like body in comparison to a pupa, which has more of a robust thorax. That's one example. The other one would be betas, you know, they're thin and streamlined versus like BMDs, which are chunkier. Tricos are chunkier. So definitely the silhouette or the shape is important. And color is also important. And there's, you know, there's like red larva. And sometimes, you know, red will be a trigger to fish. It makes them, you know, entices them to eat that particular fly. And then there's one other thing that I think that we haven't really discussed, and that's behavior. And behavior is really important in certain food organisms. Betis is a great example. So Oftentimes, you're dead drifting the beta stem, and you're not getting a take. And those fish are actually keen on those swimming betas that are lifting in the water column. So sometimes fishing a pattern like a foam wing emerger, when that thing swings in the current, that little tuft of foam forces that fly to cut when it's lifting to wobble, just like a swimming baby. Many things are similar with caddis, too. So it's not always about having a perfect dead drift, but sometimes it's the actual behavior of the insect that triggers a strike.
0: When you talk about swimming betis, is there a fly in your book that replicates that? You
1: know, um, we've got an RS-2, which, you know, there's a lot of different variations of the RS-2. And one of those being the chocolate foam wing a merger and the thing about this new project which is really a fun project and favorite flies for Colorado it's 50 essential patterns from local experts I mean it's trying to narrow down 50 favorite flies was no easy task and you know and getting a bunch of these really noted fly tires in Colorado to contribute to this project was a lot of fun and so you know, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of flies that I didn't talk about in there, like a royal wolf and some patterns that people are probably going, why isn't that included in the project? But it, this was just supposed to be a breath of fresh air, some of the new cutting edge patterns. But that chocolate foaming emerger is uh, was invented by John Tavener down in the San Juan, and it's just a variation of the RS2. But it's really one of my go-to flies for the height of a beta hatch.
0: And how does that differ? other than being brown, uh, from the RS-2. Do you think foam for the wing?
1: Yep, it's got a foam wing, a little piece of razor foam, a little two millimeter craft foam. So it it just behaves a little bit differently. It's tied very thin, very sparse. And there's so many variations, you know, Rim Chung's original pattern to, you know, the sparkle wing variation. There's a lot of different RS-2 patterns, and I think they all have a kind of a time and place based on the water clarity, whether you're fishing a three-stone tail water and how finicky the fish are. I think the advantage to that chocolate foaming emerger, it's tied very thin and very sparse. And we'll fish those down to a size 24. And that kind of gets back to what Bill was saying earlier, you know, we, we've been forced into fishing smaller flies because they're just not eating the larger offerings like they once were.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the swimming behavior is, is not just the fly. It's how you're fishing it as well.
1: Sometimes when that fly tightens up, and we've all had this happen, we're fishing and and our fly swings in the current and the fish grabs it about the time we're getting ready to cast. And, you know, it's because of that tightening of the leader and that lifting upwards in the water column. But what makes that foam wing emerger kind of unique is that clipped off piece of foam, that little nub there, when it lifts in the water column, it actually wobbles back and forth and it simulates that swimming betas and i've seen it many times and she's been canyon where you're, you're sitting there you know that those fish are eating betas because you can watch them chase you know when they're eating mm. midges they only move an inch or two to the right or the left but when they're keyed on betas they'll move you know 18 inches to chase one of those swimming betas so they're really okay. keyed in on that swimming action and oftentimes they'll let Dead drifted ones pass right on by.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's not. It's just not the behavior that they're used to. We're looking for, and uh, so off the, uh, they just ignore them. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Good. Good. Jerry Sherman in Lexington, Kentucky wrote in. He says, when confronted with a mystery midge hatch, how do you approach picking a potential effective fly? And which trade is most important. And then he asks, again size, profile, or color. So the mystery midge hatch. Can you address that?
1: I'm not sure exactly what Jerry means by the mystery midge hatch, but I think you know, midge hatches are very complex, very difficult at times. I think the biggest mistake that most anglers make during the height of a midge hatch is they fish with too much weight. And those fish are keying on pupa and you know if you're dredging the bottom you're fishing below the fish so i start you know during a midge hatch and i try to determine what size the midges are and that can be determined pretty effectively by just looking at the naturals that are flying around the water in the spring you know we have the big spring midge, so we'll see some size 18 midges on the south Platte, but we'll also see the smaller variety that can be in that 22 or 24. so Time of year can also help determine what particular size those are feeding on. So during the initial parts of a midge hatch, I typically dredge either a pale olive larva or a red larva close to the substrate, because that's where the greatest concentrations of midges are found. And then as I start to see a hatch take place, then the zone has to change as well as the fly. So then I start to fish with pupa. Typically, you know, something brown, something black, like a top secret or a black beauty. And then once the fish begin to key on the adults, then it's time to switch over to something like a mat's midge, which is included in my book. Or, you know, there's a small parachute atoms or a Griffith gnat. I mean, there's a lot of really good patterns out there. But mat's midge is definitely one of my favorites that imitate a single newly hatched midge.
0: And that's tied by Matt Miles. Um, it looks like he's in Colorado now, according to your book. Um, he was,
1: he was. He's in Virginia now, but he spent a long time here.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. And I'm looking at that fly in your book, and it looks, you know, the front end looks like a Griffith's gnat, <laughs> it appears. But then you've got this, uh, the body, a slender body and white, what, zelon wing going on. Yep. So, is that the secret, the wing and the thin body that's making it more attractive, or what do you think?
1: I think, you know, it's particularly on a newly hatched midge, when those fish are keying on that newly hatched midge with that down wing, you just can't beat a mats midge. I mean, it's very effective for a single newly hatched midge. And then, of course, you know, you get clusters. So if you're on the Big Horn or if you're on the San Juan, there's times when you have clusters and that's when, you know, Griffith Nat it's really hard to beat that pattern for clusters. So, you know, I carry a variety of midges. A small parachute atoms and a 24, 26 is also very effective imitating a single midge.
0: Yeah, yeah. Good, good. Let's see, and I'm sure that's what he when he's saying mis- well, you know, uh yeah, mystery midge is not knowing what kind of midges are out there, but it's just more of a matter of size, right? Um but you have when i've looked at your midge boxes you have the pupa in all different colors like black red green purple it seems like every color on the rainbow you've got in there now is that how do you use those colors when you're trying to figure out what they want
1: you know as a general rule i do have i tie midges in a variety of colors and you know you just you never really know what's going to work in any given situation i mean red is always good Black's always good. Brown's always good. And it it really just, there's a lot of variables, the color of the water. Purple and blue works good as the light levels drop down. So later in the evening, prior to it getting dark, blue and purple works really good. And purple seems to be the new rage. So I do tie the top secret midge now in purple as well. In fact, Uncle am merchants picked up that variation of the, the top secret midge. So, you know, purple's just kind of a hot color, but I do, I carry, you know, I carry a lot of different colors. I find myself fishing a red larva a lot, a pale olive larva a lot. And then with regard to pupas, I tend to fish more of browns and blacks, black bees, okay. and tops, so on and so forth.
0: So it's more of the larva that, that have the different colors that you're trying. And that, a lot of that has to do with water depth and color to just to differentiate them in you the water.
1: That, yeah. yeah the, um, like that, you know, the Rojo Midge is a great one It's in my book, but just You know, my mercury blood midge, you know, that imitates those uh, blood midges that live in the kind of silty, sandy, low oxygenated areas of a trout stream or a lake because they can actually carry, contain hemoglobin. So red, red larvas are are deadly. It's one of my go-tos.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Let's see. We've got some tactical things coming up here. Chris in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Says, what's your go-to tactic and technique, including fly choice, when fishing is difficult and you're not getting takes?
1: You know, that's always gonna be the most challenging thing, you know, it's, um, I've learned more by not catching fish than I have by catching fish. And those are the tough days. And even as a professional guide, we have our fair share of tough days. Everybody thinks just because you're a guide, you don't have tough days, but that's true. So, you know, There's a lot of variables, you know, bright sunny days are obviously a lot tougher than overcast days, so, but, you know, there's times when you just got to think outside the box and throw something big. If you're not getting anything, you might throw a crane fly or throw a Pat's rubber leg or throw something big and dredge down deep, looking for that opportunistic grab. But as a general rule, when I'm not getting strikes or fishing is slow, I tend to go small. I might lead off okay. in like a Mercury which is my lead fly, and then the Black Beauty and Top Secret. And I'm kind of generalizing during the winter months, but typically small flies, small tippet, and just really focus on getting good drafts, trying to sight fish to fish, making sure that the fish that I am targeting are feeding. That's a huge tip is to make sure that the fish that you're targeting are fish are actually feeding.
0: Yeah, so when you're let's say you're having a tough day having a tough day getting your client into fish what how often do you change up your flies and are you generally you know if you're fishing midge larva are you is your first choice to go smaller or is your first choice to go to a different color uh you know which directions do you go
1: that's a great question and for me it's I'll make changes with my strike indicator and my weight ten times more often than I will changing flies. So ah. The flies that I typically fish with, I believe in. They're my confidence and my go-to flies. And so, I think the anglers is, as a whole, we tend to outthink ourselves. If we're not getting a strike, then we're changing flies. And when you change flies, that equates to downtime. Your flies aren't in the water, and you can't catch fish. So. What I typically do, first of all, is I add a little bit more weight. If I'm fishing a hole, I see fish, or, you know, maybe I'm blind fishing and I can't see fish. But the first thing I'll do is make sure that I'm hitting the bottom, add a little bit more weight, move my strike indicator up. It's amazing how many times you just add a little bit of weight and boom, you're right into a fish.
0: Hmm. Okay. Okay. And that's interesting. Yeah. Changing weight and depth with the strike indicator before changing flies up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now that's in your, let's say that's in your home waters. Let's say you go up to the Madison or the Bighorn. Do you take the same approach? What, you know, um, what kind of research are you doing then to try to figure out, to get some takes on a tough day? You know, it's,
1: it, again, that's it, when you're fishing unfamiliar waters, it, it can be intimidating. And that's typically where we start out thinking ourselves and we start, we're not blocking and tackling anymore. We're just... We're not really thinking through the process. You know, pretty much what I do is wherever I go, let's say if I go to the Farmington, you know, back in Connecticut, and I've never fished it before, but I do know it's a tailwater. And the good news is, is that a tailwater is a tailwater. And, you know, they're going to pretty much have midges in the morning, midges in the afternoon. They're going to have some sort of a mayfly hatch during the day and pretty much, one tailwater is going to act like another tailwater, whether you're on the East coast, West coast, fishing the San Juan, fishing, the big horn, fishing, the green. They share a lot of similarities as do freestone. So that's kind of where I began with time of year. You know, if I go to a, a fishery that I've never fished before, it certainly never hurts to get some local information from a fly shop. But if it was April and I was fishing on a tailwater then, you know, I knew that I would probably need midges in the morning and betas in the afternoon.
0: Yeah, yeah, those things just aren't changing that much based upon uh, it being a tailwater. Yeah, it makes sense. So uh, I hope that answers your question, Jim Wright. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we always, we get this question a lot that of, you know, it's a good searching pattern. But it always comes back to knowing the water, the season, what hatches are out there. And I guess if you think about a fly, that's the great searching pattern, you could be doing a lot of searching and not finding any fish because you're so far out of the loop that, you know, you're going to have to just get really lucky, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, again, confidence plays a huge role in being successful. And if you lack that confidence in your fly and potentially your presentation and what you're doing, you you just start going into a tailspin. you know, you want to have some sort of reasonably good idea that the flies that you're fishing are what's on the menu, so to speak. And I think, you know, all that right. stuff, you know, knowing whether it's a tailwater, freestone, time of year, those all play into your selection. And then, you know, if you catch a fish, too, then that, that makes a big difference. Then you know, you have some more faith and confidence in what you're doing.
0: Yeah, I got some uh, feedback on how you've been doing. Okay, time to take another quick break, hang tight. We'll be back shortly with Pat Dorsey and talking about great flies for Colorado. So hang tight. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable synthetic and natural materials to create flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing and his methods and materials are respected worldwide whether you want your flies hand tied for you or you'd like to tie your own be sure to visit enrico puglisi flies and browse through their online catalog visit epflies.com and do a little shopping today again that's epflies.com you're listening to ask about fly fishing internet radio and we're talking with pat dorsey about go to flies for colorado if you'd like to ask pat a question just go to our homepage. Fill out that form, and we'll try to get your question answered on the show tonight. So we do have a couple of questions coming in here on the internet. Let's see. David in Charlotte, North Carolina. He says, as a former resident of Colorado, I witnessed the impact of drought and wildfires on the South Platte. Now, as a fly fisher in North Carolina, we have seen historic flooding on some of our mountain streams. Through your travels to streams in varied climates and hemispheres, do you see a difference between tailwaters and free-strung rivers and their ability to adapt to climate change.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, there's so many environmental factors, like, say, fire and flood and those kind of things. That uh, Trout are pretty resilient. You know, Cheeseman Canyon is a great example, and Decker's, and the fire, and, you know, that was just horrible to experience that and watch that once legendary trout streams go down to almost none, nothing as far as fish count is concerned. But, you know, 20 years later, Deckers has rebounded immensely. Well, more of a brown trout fishery now than it was back then. And, and Cheeseman still leans a little bit heavy on the rainbow side of things. But I think the trout are very resilient. And, you know, North Carolina, my son lives in Asheville, and you know, he works for a fly shop there. And, their bread and butter is going to be the Watauga and the South Olson. So, And, you know, there again, it's coming back to there. It's, it's a little bit intimidating, but I really enjoy fishing the Watauga and the South Holston tailwaters.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I suppose, too, after flooding and so forth, the, the streams and rivers move around, too, right? You go back to that hole that served you well in the past, and it's gone. <laughs> it's moved downstream or something. I know I was told up on the... Um, the Williams fork in Colorado that I think they did some rebuilding or something. there, putting structure in. And uh, I guess going back there to fish was a totally different experience after they did that. So.
1: Um, if, yeah, um, they, they really, they really changed that one up a lot. I'm not a big fan of the dream restoration that was done there, but um, it is what it is. And, and you're right, you know, like Freestone, they alter their course routinely each yeah. year from, you know, high water years. And yeah, and flooding, you know, that's flooding is going to change the rivers immensely and, and move a lot of debris and snags and different things in there that may take years to actually get out of there.
0: Yeah, I just did a show with Paul Weimer, and he's talking about, you know, the flooding up there on the Yellowstone this past year. And he said, I think the quote was something along, I'm just paraphrasing, but something along the lines of the Yellowstone still doesn't know where it wants to go or wants to be, (laughs) because one of the roads, he said, was totally wiped out. The river moved so far. And uh, he says, they're not going to rebuild that road. It's just, it it would be too expensive to put the road back to where it was because the river moves so much. So I can't imagine what happened underneath the water in situations like that. But I guess you just have to uh, go with the flow, so to speak, and wait it out and try to, you know, just look at those waters from a different point of view in some cases. Yeah, we did get, go ahead.
1: I think they all sort themselves out in time. And that's the good yeah. thing.
0: Mother's
1: really resilient.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to forward this one question on to you later because it's really in-depth and it might be out of your wheelhouse. So I did get another question on the internet here. Randy and Casper, Wyoming, he says, do you put the RS2 as the last fly so that you can get more movement?
1: I do. I like to put the R2 as my trailer. So I would say fish feed selectively or they feed opportunistically. So let's talk in terms of the height of a betas hatch where I might be running a very routine and regular rig of mine would be to lead off with Charlie Craven's Juju betas, the flashback. That's my attractor. And then I trail a style Cup betas, which I think is one of the best betas nymphs ever fished. And it is included in my new book because Shane Stalkup was just an amazing fly tire. And then I would have the RS2 in the trailing position because it's an emerger and it should be fished a little bit higher in the water column.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. I got one that was written in here as well on the internet. Uh, This is from James up in Idaho. He said, I heard Ed Engel mention once that in some respects, fly selection is regional in nature. Is your, In your experience, have you found this to be true? Some fly patterns just seem to work better in certain watersheds, yet they are less effective elsewhere. So that kind of, have you found that to be true? I mean, we, we just talked about tailwaters being relatively similar, but he's talking about it, regional differences.
1: Yeah, I think there's... First, you know, Ed Engel is the chief water expert and I've learned so much from Ed and respect Ed so much and saw Ed a couple of weeks ago at our author's day and he's just an amazing man and he's taught so many people, you know, about tailwaters and um, but I think every tailwater has you go into down on the San Juan or you go up on the big horn and you go back to the South Hulse, And I think every tailwater has maybe the hot fly, the local fly. That works really, really well. And I think, I think that's true. What Ed's saying but that at the same time, you could take a pheasant tail and RS2 and juju betas and probably be successful on any freestone or tailwater just about anywhere in the country. I think so many times, like we discussed the variables of having the proper depth, the weight and fishing that fly with confidence is probably as important as anything
0: yeah yeah and you know in reality when you look at some of these flies there are just very subtle differences i think and i gotta believe the flies aren't that particular <laughs> in certain respects whether it's a certain shade of brown or another shade of brown it's still it's still going to be in the brown range right so sometimes it's like you say more confidence and more where it's fished than than the actual fly it seems but
1: yeah that i Thin and sparse is important. You know, when you're fishing to selected trout, just bulky imitations aren't going to fish as well. So air on the small side, keep the flies nice, thin, very sparse, Collect like the naturals, and you're going to do better.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, Chuck in Classerville, California Road do you find that a multi-fly rig is the most effective way to fish Colorado rivers? Are there circumstances where you may choose a one-fly rig?
1: I rarely fish a one-fly rig. Typically... In Colorado, I fish with three flies, mainly because I like to use one fly as an attractor, and then trail two offerings that I think would match the hatch and A great example would be May June on the South Platte I'd lead off with like an earthworm brown San juan worm trail um buckskin behind that for a caddis larva and then a bars graphic caddis behind that for the pupa. So I've got my attractor, I've got a larva and I got a pupa, which would be very effective at imitating caddis hatches. So, and that really changes with time of year again, hatches and so on and so forth. But I typically like to use a three-fly rig with an attractor. Again, it changes with the season. If it's um, May, high water season, I might use a scud in the tailwater environment or a San Juan worm. If it's July, I might use a green drake nymph for my attractor and trail PMD nymphs or something like that. So I try to use my attractor based on the season and then trail two flies that would supplement those hatches that are occurring at the same time frame.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then do you, when you get a take on one of those flies, do you keep going with the same rig or do you narrow the selection down closer to what you caught that fish on?
1: I still, you know, I still just don't change flies that often. And I think a lot of times my clients for the day are often sometimes surprised. Sometimes I mean, I'll put on three flies and we're fishing those three flies at the end of the day, just again, because I feel like they work. Now, I think where you get into a jam is when you know, and you start out thinking to yourself is when, you know, you're having a difficult day and then all of a sudden you're changing flies, you're going into that tailspin like I t talked about and you're losing confidence. But I can say one thing, if you get a, a tractor at, that you're catching fish on, let's say a UV scud for instance during the high water season on a tailwater, then you've really got something going because as a general rule you catch more fish on the fly or flies that are further from the weight just because they drift naturally in the current so and then one other thing it you know with your tractors you do need to be careful like i said let's just say that the flows 50 cfs down at Deckers achievement canyon and you got a lot of slow moving water real spooky fish a big bright gaudy red san juan worm would probably not be a good call you would probably sneak a lot of fish whereas Maybe if I fished with a size twenty Rainbow Warrior as my tractor and then trailed two pupas behind that, it'd be a lot more efficient rig.
0: Hmm. Okay. Okay. Jim Wright in the Thornton, Colorado says, How do you successfully rig a three fly dropper? Some days I have enough problems trying to entangle a two fly system. <laughs> so any tips on fishing three flies at once? You
1: know, I always tell people that's a common question and I always tell people I can tangle two flies just as easily as three. (laughs) I like the three fly rig for the reasons we just discussed uh, with Chuck there. And you know, it, it typically, I space my flies about 12 inches apart and from my attractor, then the next fly, I tie off the bend of the preceding fly. And then the next fly I drop off that. So my three fly rig is a tandem rig, but tied off the dropper. And I used to tie eye to eye, but as I aged and, you know, it's hard enough to get one six X tippet through a 22, let alone two. The eye. So <laughs> I just I find you. myself mm-hmm. more efficient, you know? So um, that's kind of what I do. And I think, you know, just reduce your false casting is one way to avoid tangles. Just do roll cast and to uh, make sure you get your weight out of the water before you do that roll cast. Cause sometimes when you're casting and you pull that line out of the water real quick that weight kind of comes whipping at it like a little bullet and it just spins everything up so there are some strategies little tips and tips that can help you keep your flies from getting tangled up
0: so when you're doing that roll cast is it more of a are you saying to kind of slow down as you do that rather than work fast to avoid the tangles
1: yeah just slow down uh, before i fall cast You know, before I uh, roll cast, I just try to make sure that I get my weight out of the water. So above the surface and then roll cast it. And that really helps with the angles.
0: Yeah. yeah, Because usually you're not casting that very far, right? You're just picking it up and putting it back down and in the same area you were just in for the most part, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Most of my casts are 10 to 20 feet maximum. A lot of short-line nymphing and just really more concentrated on getting a good presentation than having too much line, which often results in poor line
0: management. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Josh in Murray, Utah wrote in, he says, if someone was to tie their own leader or indicator nymph fishing, what leader design formula would you recommend? And then he goes on and says, and would you recommend a different leader formula when fishing a hard body style indicator, example, foam or thingamabobber versus yarn or wool? You bet.
1: Well, unfortunately, Josh, I don't build my own leaders. When I first started guiding Monroe Coleman and some of those guys were building their own leaders. And I understand why you would build your own leader, you know, especially if you're a dry fly fisherman and you're really focusing on getting a leader that's going to turn over well for you. But the thing I never liked about those type of leaders was the knots collecting debris and so on and so forth. So I've always just been, I just typically a leader out of a packet and usually use a nine foot leader most of the time. And then if I get a nine foot 4X leader, I typically will add on another piece of 4X. If I'm using a 5X leader, another piece of 5X tippet to prolong that life of that leader, and then tie in my trailing flies behind that. With regard to using a different leader based on the indicator, no, I just use a traditional tapered leader. and I do carry thingamabobbers, but rarely use them. I'm a huge fan of yarn. The only time that, that I won't use yarn is when it's blowing really, really hard. And I think, you know, yarn hits the water softly and it detects super, super subtle strikes and I think just overall for me, at least being the tailwater guide, I think that the yard, yarn stacks the, the odds in my favor, particularly on the very
0: subtle strikes. Yeah, and especially with the spooky fish you're dealing with, like on the South Platte, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think the bobber-type indicators hit the water hard, and a lot of times spook fish. Yeah. But there's times when it's windy and you really have no choice but to use something like that. But it has to be awful windy. It has to be blowing like it does in Casper before I'll switch over to something like that. But we have a slick little indicator system. We use a orthodontic rubber band on it, a piece of tan yarn. And again, we talked about adjustments. We typically keep the indicator in one and a half to two times the depth of the water that we're fishing. So, again, getting back to the importance of making those adjustments with the indicator and your wheat, I think is what really separates you from other anglers on the stream. So, you know, making it easy to do so with that yarn, with that, it's a kind of a polypropylene or yarn is what we use and it's super, super easy to adjust.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, you bring up kind of an interesting thought. Uh, I mean, I've just upstream from a friend or something and at different times, one of us is catching fish and the other one isn't, and yet we're using the same flies and so forth. And I think a lot of fly fishers will ask, you know, their buddy, hey, what are you using? And they tell them and they start using it and they still aren't doing any good. And, and it just comes to mind that probably a better question might be, how much weight are you? How deep are you fishing, right? <laughs> Rather than the fly that they're using. It just, you know, because it just seems so many times that what is this subtle difference that the other guy's got that you don't have? Right. Would that be, some, would that be a direction you would go?
1: Absolutely. You know, I mean, and like we talked about a little earlier in the broadcast, too, is I think people, as a general rule, fish with too much weight during the height of a mid-chatch when those fish are suspended. So, you know, there's, it's not always about dredging the bottom. It gets technical at times to where you got to really pay attention to where the fish are in, in the water column. But I think as a general rule, I would say that most anglers don't fish with enough weight. I mean, that's probably the biggest walk away on guide trips. When I go out and, I'm a huge proponent of using the moldable tungsten punty. I use that JP's nipping Mud because it allows me to make those adjustments very quickly instead of fumbling around with split shots. I think we can all agree, especially as we get older, that trying to find the little slit in the split shot, you end up dropping one or two, and then by the time you get them on, then they're hard to manage. If you have three BBs on and you're hitting the bottom, you take one off. Now you just made a 33% weight adjustment. You may not think of it in those terms, but the advantage to the soft weight is you can make those small adjustments, 5%, 10%, and make them very quickly.
0: How do you keep the putty from sliding up and down or falling off? What's the secret to using putty?
1: I use a size six split shot on the junction between my leader and my tippet. So that split shot will rest right on that knot. And then I take the putty and I mold it over the split shot, making it into a bigger split shot, and it will not slide down the leader at all.
0: Ah, uh, I get it. So you have that base weight that's kind of your baseline, so to speak, for weight, and right. then work up from there. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay, good.
1: It's real, efficient, real quick. I know that's probably the common gripe with people that, have tried the putty alternatives and didn't really like how they performed. And the most important thing is to put the smaller split shot on there and then make the putty, form it into a ball. Don't make it look like a cigar because that'll tangle up. So make sure you get it into a circular ball and that it pretty much stays there. And then I can make those adjustments really fast, you know,
0: with yeah. the. You there? Yes, sir. Oh, okay. Sounded like you you dropped off there. Yeah, that sounds like uh, that you could make those adjustments quickly. Good tip there for everybody. Yeah. Let me take a quick break here. We'll come back and we'll finish up with talking about uh, flies for Colorado. So hang tight. We'll be right back. Fly Fishers International needs your support. Its conservation projects at both the national and club level are addressing critical issues of importance to fly fishers. FFI efforts include being a strong advocate for removing dams, on the Snake River, preserving water quality through their Science on the Fly program, and taking action to conserve the declining populations of Atlantic striped bass. FFI serves as a strong advocate for fly fishing in all waters for all fish, to preserve and to promote the arts of fly casting and fly tying, and to help ensure future generations can continue to enjoy these one-of-a-kind experiences. These efforts wouldn't be nearly as effective without your help, If you're not already a member, we invite you to join Fly Fishers International as they work to cultivate conservation, education, community within the sport of fly fishing. Join Fly Fishers International today and help support their fine work. For more information, go to their website at flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Pat Dorsey about go-to flies for Colorado. If you'd like to ask Pat a question, just fill out that form on our homepage, send it in, and we'll see if we can't get it answered for you. So let me just check in there. Okay, Chuck in Placerville, another question. He wants to know if you use a stomach pump.
1: You know, not very often. Every now and then. I can think of a time I used it this summer in uh, Cheeseman Canyon, and it was interesting because I saw the fish feeding, And I was having difficulty catching those fish. So I did pump a fish and to my surprise, the fish were full of pale olive midge larva. And I think it can be a valuable tool at times. I don't recommend doing it a lot, but you know, in certain situations, I think it can be a valuable tool providing that you know how to use it, filling the bulb up with water, squirting a little bit of it out, gently inserting into the fish and then just squirting a little bit of water down into the throat and backing it back out. So, um. I hope that helps.
0: Okay, okay. Tom Paulson in Big Pine, California. He says, "Do you fish paradigons? And uh, what type of hooks do you use? Do you use any competition barbless jig hooks?"
1: About the only pattern that I tie on jig hooks commercially. Um, you know, I'm I'm not a big Euro guy. I'm more of an indicator guy. I do fish some jig stuff. Frenchy's a great one. But uh, yeah. I tie the bread crust on a jig hook, a Cavus imitation. And I like the Yumpquah jig hook for that. So, but you know, it's, I'm not a good person to talk to about Euro fishing. I just, I send everybody to Brian Kelso. He's our authority on Euro fishing at the shop. So if you have any questions with regard to you know Euro tactics, he would be a great person. To discuss those with, and I think that you got to stay true to your heart, and you pretty much do what you do. And uh, you know, I'm a tailwater junkie that fishes teeny flies with the strike indicator and three fly rigs and weight and so on and so forth.
0: Okay, okay. A couple more questions coming in here on the internet, Tom Paulson, Big Pine again. He says, do you rig your three flies on taglines or hook bends? I think you just said you're using hook bends nowadays, right? Yes, sir. Coming we off talked about now. that. Yeah. But uh, nothing wrong with taglines if you want to spend the time doing those, right? No, no. A, yeah. I do find um,
1: it tangled more, though, than than coming off the bend myself. So that's kind of why I don't, that's why I prefer to come off the bend.
0: Yeah, yeah. Tom Zina, and he says, how many inches of tippet do you space the flies on a three-fly rig?
1: I space them about 12 inches apart. If I'm Mm -hmm. using a two-fly rig, and keep in mind, if you go down to New Mexico, if you go up on the Bighorn, you know, there's some areas that uh, you got to check your local regulations because there's places where you can only fish two flies. So then I typically space them 14 to 16 inches in a two-fly rig. Fishing three flies, I space them about 12 inches.
0: Yeah. Another one, Mike, Heeman in Elizabeth, Colorado. With your three-fly rig, where do you put your weight? Below the terminal fly or between the flies?
1: I put it 12 inches above my attractor. So come down with that that nine foot leader, tie on that additional piece of tippet to prolong the life of my leaders. We discussed a few moments ago and then about 12 inches or so there. Then I tie on my first fly and then space the remaining flies uh, about 12 inches apart.
0: Okay. Let me just see what else we got. Do you use tippet rings?
1: You know, I don't. And uh, that seems to be, um, kind of the new rage, I'd have to say that a lot of people, when they show up to the river in the morning, they have a a tippet ring. And I'm just a conventional, I tie blood knots. So I just, from the terminating point of my leader, I just tie a blood knot I like them, they're symmetrical. I like the tag end coming off each side. It's a nice little anchor for my, my weight. Certainly if you're happy using a tippet ring and it works efficiently for you, then I would highly recommend
0: using them. Yeah, Uh, another question came in, do you use a cider?
1: I don't, you know, again, kind of getting back around to the Euro side of things. I really don't. There are times where if I'm fishing the Taylor River, when fish get super indicator sensitive, I'll just take off the indicator and I'll just tight line it. But most of the time I am using a yarn indicator just trying to stack the odds in my favor. I think a lot of people, they they want to know, do I use an indicator? And yes, I mean, because not only does it help you detect the strike, but it also allows you to get a good dead drift, keep a little bit of slack in your system when you're long line nipping, slack is your friend. You know, you want that drift to be loose. As soon as it gets tight, that's when you're dragging, it looks like your flies are attached to something. That indicator also works very well. I call it a drift reference point. It allows me to get a dead drift.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Ron in Illinois, he says, during the winter season, how do you set up your indicator rig? Does it change from warm weather fishing? So uh, are you using the same style rigging and so forth, warm versus cold? Pretty much. You know, there's
1: times, um, there's times when I'll, you know, cut the yarn down smaller the flows are low, and again, getting back to fish being indicator sensitive, you know, sometimes I'll cut that indicator down super super small, particularly if I'm fishing small quantities of weight. And to the contrary, you know, during the height of runoff, when I say we got a big water here in Cheesman Canyon and it's flowing 900 cfs or something, then sometimes I'll upsize my indicator. I'll put more material in there to try to help suspend that. But as a general rule, my indicators pretty much consistent throughout the year and I just really uh, I think it's really important to fish yarn in the winter because the strikes are super super subtle
0: okay all right Tommy in Colorado wrote in and said he says if you find yourself with an extra half day to go hit deckers at the last minute but have no time to try to get yourself dialed in what two nymph rig would you start prospecting with assuming you were just going to dig something common out of your box (laughs) looking for that easy button there <laughs> that's
1: tough. I mean uh, I can tell you one thing like an egg and a midge or an egg and a betas that's a great that's just a great thing just some or a red larva and a betas nymph or uh, again that's that's a tough question because there's there's so many variables right um, that really right. revolve around around the season but I can't you know Deckers and Cheeseman are super technical fisheries and they humble the best of anglers, including myself. And the most important thing is that you yard dialed in, but I would say day in and day out, air on the small size. And a lot of the oldies, but goodies like a miracle dance, a buckskin and an RS two WD 40, I mean, flies that, that were developed, you know, 50 years ago. The South Platte Brassies, another great example, those patterns still catch as many fish today as they did when they were invented back in in the seventies. So it's hard to go wrong with those patterns. I mean, you know, if you were going to fish an RS2, you can't go wrong with an RS2 down at Deckers. It'll catch fish 365 days a year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't even ask you, how did you go about selecting all the flies for your book? You know, your book, I mean, the favorite flies for Colorado. Yeah.
1: What I did is, I I mean, there's guys like John Barr and Charlie Craven that could have filled the whole project up. So what I did is I reached out to a bunch of really well-known fly tires here in Colorado and asked them to submit their favorite fly. And so the word favorite is subjective, and in the introduction, I kind of talk a little bit about that. For some people, their favorite fly was their dad's favorite fly or their grandfather's favorite fly, or potentially it's a fly that they've just done really well on over the years and so on and so forth. There's so many different things, and a lot of the, the oldies but goodies, stuff like woolly boogers and royal wolves and royal coachman's and some of those patterns weren't included in this project, but The biggest thing was, is I was trying to get people that have lived in Colorado for a long part of their life or contributed to Colorado fishing. So that was kind of part of it. And then I really wanted them to contribute a fly that they feel really good about, maybe their favorite fly, and and to have guys like Charlie Craven and Cooter Ball and Illawani and just, I mean, the list goes on, just some really, really renowned fly tires that bring to the table one of their truly favorite flies, and then sharing the recipe and sharing some tips on how to fish it, and it is a great project, one of my favorite projects so far.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think going down to, like, the fly fishing show in Denver and just looking down the, all the fly tying benches, you know, I mean, you there's some really really well-known people that that sit at those benches, right? I mean, there, there's a uh, whole book right there. <laughs> so it must have been really hard to choose, I, I guess. So. Yeah, it
1: was it, it was one of those things, again, that I wanted to have some historical stuff in here, the house and lot, which was a pattern that my father really enjoyed. and It was President Eisenhower's favorite fly. You want to have some of that kind of stuff in there. And, and then there's just a lot of patterns that, They've been talked about and I really didn't want to rehash out, out that stuff. And so I wanted to get some of the new cutting edge patterns that I think are now proven favorites for people. And so, yeah, it was hard. I mean, and not to have a discussion about a hares or a pheasant tail or a Royal Wolf or an elk hair caddis or, you know, Royal coachman renegades and gray hackle yellows and all that kind of stuff that may be somebody's favorite fly, but. Those flies have been written about in the past and so I wanted to have kind of a unique flavor to this project.
0: Yeah, yeah. There was a question that that came up here from Tom L. Looks like he's in New Mexico now. And I'm not I'm assuming you're familiar with this but if you aren't just say so. But he says are Jim Poor's flies still viable? And I had to look up who Jim Poor was. Do you know who Jim Poor was? Yeah, Jim Poor.
1: In fact, I've got one of his flies included in my book. It's called the Poor. Oh, okay. Whip. You know, Jim Poor was open to angler's all, and so you know, angler's all was obviously one of the first fly shops in the Denver metropolitan area, and uh, Jim Poor was really one of the guys that was cutting edge with regard to small flies. He was one of the only fly shops in town where you could find a fly smaller than a size 18 back in the day. But he, uh, definitely a legendary fly tire, small fly tire. The Poor Witch, I think, is one of his best, which is a spent-wing mayfly pattern. And uh, that's a pattern I don't think you can live without. But I don't think there's a lot of people that know who Jim Poor is. And the wonderful solutions that he made to small fly fishers, he certainly set the stage for people to be successful in Cheeseman Canyon back in the day.
0: Yeah, I was reading, I was reading in your book and he was talking about, he opened up a Mountain View Tackle in the basement of a hotel in Littleton, Colorado. This was back like 1950s, yeah, when that wasn't even a suburb of (laughs) it, it was another town. (laughs) I thought that was interesting, yeah, yeah, so... um, um,
1: There's some, you know, like Jack Dennis's books have some of Jim Poore's patterns in it and such. So mm-hmm. um, I think do a yeah. little research and find out some stuff. But that poor witch, that's definitely one you want to have.
0: That's one. Okay. Okay. Well, let's end with that. It's been a lot of questions answered tonight. Thank you so much. Stick with me, though, Pat, for just – we're going to give away your book here in a few minutes. And I want to make sure – I get the right answer to the question I'm going to ask, so I'm going to have you help me with that. So hang tight. we will be right back and we'll give away these other prizes as well. Do you travel to fish? Medical and security emergencies happen. When they do, you can rely on Global Rescue, the world's leading membership organization providing integrated medical security, travel risk, and crisis response services to travelers worldwide. Without a Global Rescue membership, an emergency evacuation could cost you more than 100000 $100,000. That's why over 1 million members of trust Global Rescue to get them home when the worst happens. Don't travel without Global Rescue. Memberships start at just $129. Learn more about Global Rescue's program. Just click on the Global Rescue icon in the footer of Ask About Fly Fishing or in the right-hand column on our homepage. Both will get you out to the Global Rescue site. So there you go. Just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says "What do you think of the show?" Just click on that link, leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away our prizes, and we've got a one-year membership to Fly Fisher's International and a one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. If you're not familiar with Fly Fisher's International, go check them out. The flyfishersinternational.org. Uh, so there is a .com, but this is .org. So. Check them out. They do a lot of great things for our world of fly fishing, and you'll want to become a member if you don't win tonight. So our first winner then is, and these just get randomly selected from the show's registration database. If you didn't register for tonight's show, do so for the next show. It's too late now for this one, but you get a chance then in the future to win some of these great prizes. So our winner for that is Jim Ziegler, Jim Ziegler in Pennsylvania. So congratulations, Jim winner of the Fly Fishers International membership, one-year membership. And now we'll weigh the one-year membership to Trout Unlimited. And our winner for that is Michael Tiemann, Michael Tiemann in Colorado. So congrats to you, Michael, and congrats to both gentlemen for participating in tonight's drawings. So good for you. Now we'll give away a copy of Pat's latest book, Favorite Flies for Colorado, and this is a Stackpole book. got fifty patterns in it, and you've heard all about a lot of them tonight, but not all of them. Great book to get. again, if you don't have this book, we you should pick one up and for your library and for your tying bench, we've got they've got instructions in their recipes, I should say, and uh, you'll be good to go there. The way we play this is on the home page of Ask About Fly Fishing, you can put in your answer to the question I'm asking. Put in your answer with your name, your location, first person that gets the answer correct wins. Earlier in the show, we talked about the importance of certain things in fly design. There are standard three things that have been talked about in the past. List those three things, plus the fourth item that Pat mentioned. So these are ranked in importance the features of a fly, and then the fourth one as well. So I hope I phrase that question well enough for you to answer it, and we'll see what we get here. So Pat, I got there's a slight delay before they hear me, and then then we've got wait for them to type and put it in. So let's see what we've got here. And it looks like, okay, we've got a bunch of them coming in now. I'll run this by you first and you let me know if this is, this will work for you, Pat. Size, shape, color, and action.
1: Good enough for me. Behavior is what it is,
0: but that's good.
1: Action is behavior. That's good enough for me.
0: So uh, Jeff, uh, Arthur Byrne in Las Cruces is our winner for that. And we've got a bunch of others coming in. Joyce Deming, you, you've got it right for sure. And it's uh, like, yeah, a bunch of people, Bob Younger, Bob, a bunch of people getting it right. But uh, Jeff, you're our winner for tonight. What you need to do is in that same box, just send me your address. And I've got your email address and your name here. Just send me your address and then we'll get Stackpole to send that book out to you. So thanks to Stackpole for doing that. They're a great publisher and one of the greatest. They just keep producing wonderful books. And I know they've treated you right, I think, over the years, Pat, because <laughs> all the books that have come out of there that you publish. published. So uh, great, great organization. Well, Pat, thanks so much again for spending your time with us. And uh, I don't expect you'll be going fishing tomorrow since it's probably going to be below zero, right?
1: No, I canceled my guide <laughs> trip for tomorrow, so I'm going to think I'll be home tying some flies. Yep.
0: Yeah, but Monday it's going to be like 50 degrees, so we'll be back in action here in Colorado. Thanks so much for being on the show and sharing your valuable information and all those years of knowledge. We truly appreciate it.
1: Thank you. I appreciate being here.
0: All right. Take care, Pat. All
1: right.
0: Hopefully all of you have found the podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on the top line menu. In that archive, you'll find all of our past shows, over 360-some shows now which you can search by keyword, keyword phrase, trout, tarpon, South Platte River, your own anything, whatever you want to look for. You're going to find a show on it, I believe. And if you don't, write me and we'll get a show done. So go ahead and explore, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you're going to, what you're going to discover as you explore. Our next broadcast will be on January 4th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern time. And on that show, I'll interview Bob, Bob Mallard. And our topic for the show will be fly fishing Maine. So Bob has fly fished and guided the Maine waters for over 40 years. Maine has the most diverse fly fish opportunities in the New England, and is a popular destination for anglers seeking trout, landlocked salmon, striped bass, and a host of other game fish. Join us and explore the rivers and streams, ponds and lakes of this magnificent state. Be sure to add this upcoming show to your calendar. Just click on the Add to Calendar button below Bob's picture on our homepage, and you'll be all set and ready for the show. I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Trout Unlimited, Stackpole Books, Town, Global Rescue, and Gills Fly Fishing International, plus Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.